Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. It has been one year since Uzbek, Uzbek police and security forces broke up peaceful protests in Karakal, Pakistan. The protest started over proposed changes to Uzbekistan's constitution that would have deprived Karakal, Pakistan of its status as a sovereign republic with the right to secede from Uzbekistan. When a large crowd gathered outside the administrative building in in the Karakalpak capital, Nukus, on July 1st, police responded by firing tear gas and rubber bullets on the crowd, and that started the violence. Uzbek authorities said 21 people were killed, nearly 250 people injured, and more than 500 people were detained. These figures are disputed by some who claim the real numbers are higher. A highly publicized trial process started this year and has just recently finished. The 61 defendants were all found guilty. But there are many questions about the fairness of these trials and also criticism that no one from the police or security forces who were responsible for the most of the deaths and injuries have been put on trial. On this podcast, we take a look at what happened in Karakal, Pakistan in the years since the violence and what the situation looks like today. And to discuss all this, I am joined by Gulai Mahmedova, a native of Karakal, Pakistan, who now lives outside of Uzbekistan, and we are using a pseudonym for Gulai to protect friends and family back in Karakal, Pakistan from any possible repercussions from authorities. Joanna Lillis, veteran reporter on Central Asia for Eurasianet, The Economist, and author of the book Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. Steve Sperdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor at the University of Southern California. Thank you all for being here. And Joanna, I would like to start with you. You were in Karakal, Pakistan right after the violence last July. Could you describe what you saw and what people told you about the events of July 1st and 2nd? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, thank you for the invitation. I think it's important that we um, that we uh, talk a lot about about what, what happened in Karakal, Pakistan and uh, the situation um, as it is today. So, as you said, I, I did go to Karakal, Pakistan um, as soon as I could um, and um, arrived um, just as the violence was dying down. Um, and what I found there was, well, for, for one thing, a very traumatized population, you you know, people were very, very traumatized by the violence that they had witnessed um, over the last, over the previous couple of days. Um, they, they talked about, you know, about, um, well, many of them had witnessed um, people being, being, being hit by, um, well, they were never sure exactly what they had been hit by, but they, they saw people, you know, their bodies uh, kind of torn apart by whatever hit them. Um, they saw people dying in front of them. Um, and they also saw the police using, the, the security forces using what they said was a lot of violence against people as they tried to disperse what, what had become violent um, clashes. Now, most of, the, um, all of the people indeed that I spoke to, other than members of the security forces, did say that the, the, the violence had started because um, the, the security forces tried to disperse or started firing, tried to disperse the protests and started firing rubber bullets rather indiscriminately. Now, I didn't witness that, so I can't say. The you know security forces said they were attacked by protesters. Um, the other uh, thing that was very notable when I was there was um, the uh, sweeping nature of um, the detentions. Now, outside the police station, there was a large crowd of several hundred people all seeking news of their relatives. And many of them were very, very frantic uh, because they didn't know if the relatives, they, the relatives had disappeared. They didn't know if they'd been arrested or if they'd been were been killed, injured. Um, so they were frantically going around the police station and around the hospitals and around the morgues. Um, I also went to the morgue and witnessed a man come out after identifying his uh, the body of his younger brother who was killed in the protest. He was absolutely, as you can imagine, distraught. Um, 
um, the relatives outside the police station also very, very, very frightened and anxious. They were frightened. For them, the, the best option was to find that their relative was in the police station, but they were, you know, they were afraid that they were being mistreated, tortured inside because, you know, uh, for, for all of the um, talk of eradicating torture in Uzbekistan in recent years, it has not been eradicated. So uh, there was a very, very, very tense situation uh, when I was there in early July. Um, the police um, themselves detained me briefly um, and uh, they did then allow me, after checking with Tashkent um, that I was an accredited journalist, they did allow me to continue my reporting. But as I say, a very tense situation and a very, very traumatised population um, so that was the situation. Okay. Thank you, Joanna. Let me, let me ask Gulam, uh, if you could, I'm sorry to ask, but can you recall uh, what you heard and, and the information you were getting a year ago when there was violence in Karakal, Pakistan? Yes, I uh, I reached out to some people in Karakal, Pakistan, and one of the persons that I spoke to was a medical doctor who works at the hospital. She said all of the ho- hospital were packed by the people who were injured at the protest. And uh, she said that uh, most of the people who were in the hospital, they had the same issue. The snipers were targeting male genitals. She said that the hospitals were not equipped to take care of these people. And uh, she was uh, just devastated. And uh, she kept saying that it's a genocide. And uh, overall, I spoke with a number of people. They were angry, terrified, and scared at the same time. Okay, uh, thank you. Okay, so the violence is over, and now the investigation is starting on this. Steve, can you kind of walk us through the investigation and who they were looking for? Who ended up being detained? Well, hundreds were detained in in the aftermath. As as Joanna said, it was chaos during the, the violence. We know that excessive and disproportionate lethal force was used by security forces. And to date, a year later, we have very skim reports, very, very, very sort of murky reports, incomplete reports that I I believe three law enforcement officials have been either charged or perhaps detained and charged. And no real update on that case, although that is Really, the central question that everyone has been asking from day one is, will there be accountability for those deaths, for that use of lethal force? And of course, the government made a lot of of news and called attention to the fact. And I think one of the biggest differences, the Uzbek government knew the moment after this happened that there would be parallels drawn with the 2005 Andijan massacre, um, for which... Uzbekistan's human rights record was really was really defined by this during the Karimov period, and therefore one of the biggest aspects, one of the different, the biggest uh, differences the Uzbek government tried to draw was that they announced the creation of an independent, so-called independent parliamentary commission, independent parliamentary investigation, made up of by one former political prisoner, Azam Farmonov, also an activist, Gunoz Mamrasulova, a human rights defender, but by and large. The committee, the commission, was made up of by people affiliated with the government, and it really didn't meet standards for independence uh, that that we get from international standards in terms of how these investigations should be handled. But we're still here a year later, not having seen the report of the parliamentary commission, and all throughout the process, as you mentioned, 
these trials of 61 individuals, the members of the Parliamentary Commission have largely been cheerleading the government prosecution process. Uh, in some cases, they've been participating in what, what I would call highly theatrical, and of course, Joanna attended um, aspects of these trials, but highly orchestrated and theatrical performances and these trials, acts of contrition uh, and acts of, of, of mercy. So we have seen a number of individuals released by the government. And in fact, uh, as you noted, Bruce, I think in the beginning, the, the most recent appeal to the Supreme Court just earlier this month re did result in the reduction of some of the sentences. I think eight individuals were were. Uh, additionally released from from detention or from from imprisonment uh, another four individuals who had been threatened with having harsher sentences who were under house arrest were, were not placed in a harsher punishment of course those are things that certainly the the human rights community and journalists I think you know obviously think is important but at the heart of this at the heart of this the trials did not meet international standards of fairness there has been no release of this supposedly independent investigation by the Parliamentary Commission. And as I said in the beginning, no accountability on the actual use of lethal force by police and officials. And also, really, at the end of the day, no truth-telling about what actually happened. And I should also note, unless uh, perhaps you or, or Joanna or Guillaume have seen this, I still have not seen official lists of the names of those killed, the names of the dead, which is so important for an accounting of the truth and also, of course, for the relatives of those who died. And so therefore, we're still left with many, many outstanding questions. And 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 one, of course, thing to add to this, you know, as Guillaume powerfully mentioned, this perception of repression, a reality and a perception of repression, one should say that it was clear that the events that took place in Karakal, Pakistan, they really shined a light on ethnic minorities, this issue in Uzbekistan, uh, the rights of Karakal, Pakistan, the issue of language, of autonomy, of education, of all of these rights that, that were really at the heart of these protests, the largest protest in Uzbekistan's history, perhaps. And none of those issues have really either been addressed, although we have seen President Mirzoyev starting his now presidential campaign for the, the fresh elections that are about to begin uh, in Karakal, Pakistan, and really smoothing over these issues as much as possible and trying to, I think, make promises of additional economic incentives to the region, which is something that we've seen before. So all of these things have taken place, but the, the largest ingredients of justice and accountability still remain absent. Thanks, Steve. Uh, and as you mentioned, Joanna, you actually attended some of these trials. Um, could you tell us what what was the atmosphere like when you went in? I mean, they made a big deal of saying we're going to do we're going to use the language Karakalpak language in this, but of course they moved the venue out of the Karakalpakstan Republic for the trials. Um, yes, I did attend um, some some uh, some of the trials. Indeed, I, um, the the first trials uh, were held in Bukhara, um, which is what five hundred kilometers from Nukus, the epicenter of the protests. Um, now, the, the the authorities said that was because repair work, maintenance work going on in the Raman Center in Nukus, so they couldn't hold the detainees there. Now, um, but some of the relatives that I spoke to were pretty distressed about that. You can imagine it's very hard for people to travel five hundred kilometers to a trial. Um, to support their relatives and it's expensive too and people in Karakal, Pakistan are far from rich. Um, now the trials, um, the trial in 
Bukhara was the um, the first trials. There were two trials, mass trials involving about in the end about sixty people, um, and I attended three days of the trial. Um, the, the what what we might call the main trial, where the better known um, defendants were. Now that's Dalit Morat, Tashi Morato, for example, lawyer and um, uh, journalist, and then uh, Lalagul Kalakhanova, um, a journalist. Some of the more prominent uh, community leaders. Um, I attended the trial there, and then I attended a session of the appeal at the. Supreme Court um, recently back in um, April. Now, what I would say about that, there was, I think there was a, a certain, certainly the government was eager to present a, a perception that um, times have changed since the Karimov era and this, these trials are open. Hence, I was able to access them without any problems as a journalist. Um, so they were eager to show an openness and uh, to show um, to 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 show that due process was being followed. But but and this is a big but. Um, uh, I would echo what Steve said. I mean, I'm not an expert like Steve is on this, but it, it, the, the trials clearly didn't meet international standards and international um, standards of uh, proof um, that would be required for convictions. Um, now, in fact, I met um, Dalit Morat Tajimuratov's lawyer today. Um, um, so Tajim Moratov got 16 years and um, that was not reduced on appeal. Um, now, he has a lawyer called Sergei Mayorov who defended him during the appeal and he listed to me numerous violations of due process. And also, I mean, the central fact is um, that um, the, the court produced in neither the first trial nor in the appeal produced no evidence that Daulet Tajim Moratov called for any violence or called for the violent overthrow of the state. Um, now, no evidence was produced. In fact, video evidence to the contrary was produced where he was asking people to disperse peacefully. Um, but his lawyer was telling me today that, um, you know, this kind, this evidence was slapped down by a so-called expert witness who said that he was saying those words, but his body language suggested that he was really, you know, calling on people to, to rally violently or, or, or something like that. Um, so, you know, we're talking about burden of proof here and about... Um, you know, the, the, the lawyer complained of what, what they call accusatory bias, where they, they, there's a sort of perception, the presumption of innocence is being violated. Um, and also there were the most extraordinary scenes, for example, I witnessed one when all of the defendants who had all admitted a measure of guilt except for Tasha Muratov, who denied all the charges, um, they, they all kind of uh, got up and put on a show of contrition, bowing their heads and bowing and begging for forgiveness of President Mizyov and begging forgiveness of the Uzbek people. They did that when some uh, members of parliament who were members of the commission investigating the events turned up in the court. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it's an extraordinary display. It, it made me think of a show trial. And it also, can't, you can't help but think that the defendants felt that the trial was political if they felt the need to invoke politicians, you know, and, and to put on this display for politicians. So while there was a lot of openness and Dalit Morat, Tasha Muratov was given, he was allowed to question witnesses at length, um, you know, to, 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 to pull apart their testimony. Um, at one point when I was present in court um, in Bukhara in the first trial, they, um, he he had uh, he reduced a woman to tears on the witness stand and she admitted she'd given false testimony against him now no one was prosecuted for that no one was made answerable and that false testimony you know despite that false testimony he was convicted so there, there does seem to have been um there are there, there, a sort of um 
yeah, uh, a, a perception certainly um, that that um, all the the other defendants were kind of uh, encouraged to testify against Tashimurata so that he could take the main rap. Although although others, of course, remain in prison and remain convicted. And the other thing I would just say quickly, the members of the commission investigating that Steve mentioned, um, who who turned up in court and monitored much of the trial. Um, where are the results of their investigation? I mean, it's been, you know, a year now, nearly, and they have not pu- published the results of the so-called in- independent investigation, which is really quite shocking. Now, I spoke to um, the, the chairwoman of, of that commission investigating, the ombudswoman, um, when I was uh, in court at, in Bukhara in December, and um, she told me that they would wait for the court and then publish, uh, to, to finish the trials, to finish and then publish published but it seemed to me a, a sort of um, why why would it have to depend on what the on what the court finds and also if the commission finds something that doesn't follow that um you know the, the 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 narrative that the court found then what happens well we don't know because that investigation remains under wraps after one year okay thank you joanna um, you know and steve let me, let me give you a chance to jump in here since you're a legal expert having heard what joanna just said can you add a little bit to uh, your your impressions of the trial process well of the trial process i mean i i think the trial process as joanna said i mean she used the term show trial and i, I have to concur i think you know um a number of us in the human rights community approached this with by by giving in a way the uzbek government a benefit of the doubt because i, I think as joanna properly said um, there was a sense that there would be more openness. There was, again, this announcement of the Parliamentary Commission to begin with. That Those were certainly important aspects and not to be not to be minimized, but as time went on. I mean, I think Uzbekistan looks profoundly less free, profoundly, in some ways, unfortunately, more repressive one year on from these seminal cataclysmic events. And from a legal perspective, yes, um, these shows of contrition, these remarkably orchestrated scenes, they really smacked of pressure on the defendants. In, in, in terms of Taj Muratov, he mentioned that after his detention, officials had stepped on his head. I mean, these were absolutely horrific allegations of torture that fly in the face of President Mirzoyev's early statements when he first became president that torture would have no place in Uzbekistan. In fact, he signed in 2017, a very important anti-torture decree that said that any evidence obtained under torture would not be admissible in court. And so therefore, these statements that he made, and and, and again, this false testimony against him by, by that witness, all of this reeked of due process violations, extreme ones, and really should have uh, meant that, that there would be a new trial, that there would be more independent observers, that there would be really uh, a different process, one that would take place in Karakal, Pakistan, given given the nature of these protests. You know, also from a legal perspective, I think we have to not forget the the central role played by these extremism statutes in the criminal code, the ones um, for so-called overthrow of the constitutional regime of Uzbekistan, which are notoriously vague, notoriously overbroad in their definition, and really allow the government to prosecute anyone they wish. So Taj Muratov, the charges that he was eventually charged with, there were a number of them, but the central ones um, go back to the criminal code, are really the the tried and true allegations or, or statutes used earlier by the Karimov regime and now, unfortunately, the Mirzoyev government to prosecute political opponents. And 
And Sergei Mayorov, who I respect so 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 much, in fact, he was my lawyer, uh, you know, years ago, and 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 represents many of those persecuted in Uzbekistan. He rightly called Taj Muratov a political prisoner recently, and I think that was after um, watching this odyssey unfold of these trials. So I think all the due process violations they add up to some really serious violations that I think form the basis most likely most likely for. You know the UN Human Rights Committee at some later stage to call what happened in these trials arbitrary and unlawful. So I think all of those issues, you know, unfortunately, as as much as officials in Uzbekistan would like to close a chapter on this, I, I think they've really just planted the seeds for you know living with this issue in a way that they they probably don't want for for many years to come, unless they're willing to take another look, uh, unless the Supreme Court can act independently of the executive branch. And, and as Joanna said, I, I just fully agree, and I think William as well, that without accountability, this issue will just continue to fester. And of course, the, the relatives and the victims will have to live um, with this terrible tragedy unresolved. Thanks, Steve. Um, Guglielm, I, I get to you. I, one, I want your impression on the trial process, too, and, and also any, any other people you know from Karakal Pakistan, what do they say about the trial process? But before you get into that, just for the benefit of our listeners who might not know Davlat Murat, Taji Muratov, can you tell us who he is? Davlat Murat, Taji Muratov, he is a lawyer, journalist, and a very kind person who helped so many people to defend their rights. He was a pro bono lawyer, and uh, he is a courageous patriot. And regarding my opinion on the trial in Bukhara and Tashkent, I agree completely with Steve and Joanna that it was spectacle and show. And when this woman uh, was a witness, she said that uh, protesters were paid, and when Dawlit Murad confronted her, she bursted up in tears, and she said that she was forced to uh, uh, provide false information. And uh, um, just that this is a tiny proof that everything else was staged. People were forced to ask forgiveness they were threatened. Not only their lives were on threat, but the, their family members were threatened as well. And uh, regarding the commission, independent, so-called independent commission, it wasn't independent at all. They were just uh, doing what the government asked them to do. Uh, Gulnos, uh, who represents Swedish human rights organization, uh, there is nothing Swedish about that organization. It was started by a uh, Uzbek guy who uh, in Sweden, and Gulnos herself, you know, uh, she was covering up the uh, evil acts of the government. When Dalut Murad spoke up about the tortures, she called tortures root treatment, you know. Um, so even um, you could see how they try to cover up the government. So uh, I wouldn't trust their report, um, even though it's taking them forever to make it public. And people in Karakal, Pakistan are outraged by the trials, especially uh, since uh, this week, law enforcement officers who tortured a 32-year-old man to death in Anjijan were sentenced only to three years in prison. 
while gentle-spirited Dalit Murad, who follows the law to the T, got 16 years simply for trying to organize this peaceful protest. So people are just uh, very outraged in Kargil, Pakistan. Bruce, can I mention another legal issue that I see at the very heart of this as well? Yes, please. Well, you know, one sort of uh, you know, cognitive dissonance here that I see is from the perspective of, of Karakalpak protesters, including Daulet Murat Tajimuratov, the constitution, both the old one and the new one, after the referendum that was held in April this year, guarantee Karakalpakstan under the constitution the right to secede. Of course, we know famously now these were the basis, this was the, the reason for the protests, was the attempt to remove those articles from the draft constitution. Um, and eventually, um, President Mirzoev climbed down from that proposal, left those in the new constitution. But if those, if those rights still exist in the constitution, then why would protests about that issue result in terrorism charges or extremism charges or so many harsh charges for those that peacefully exercise their right to speak about this issue or to advocate for this issue peacefully? If that right does not exist then it, it, sort of the entire premise on which these trials took place, um, again, when, when you look at all the due process, the absence of due process, the absence of evidence, really the entire argument, the entire basis of the trials falls away. Um, and that, that does, I think, render Taji Muratov a political prisoner. So the new constitution, we have Article 89, which, again, uh, guarantees this, this provision uh, for Karl Kalpakistan's right to secede. And it's just something that, again, the authorities have glossed over. They've been unwilling to discuss. And and again, I think one more issue also, of course, that we haven't mentioned yet is in neighboring Kazakhstan, we have several individuals detained on charges uh, among the Karakapak diaspora, people alleged to have been organizing violence from outside. And we had the authorities very early on blaming this on people outside. And now even further afield, as far as Norway, uh, we have one of the individuals that's affiliated with the Alga Karakalpakstan party sentenced to 18 years in absentia for his alleged role in organizing these protests, although it's clear as day, and I think Guliaim here might be able to comment as, as a member of the diaspora, that it would simply not be possible for activists outside the, outside the country, so far outside of Uzbekistan, given their certainly they're active and enthusiastic members of the opposition or the or the diaspora community, but unable to organize such large and unprecedentedly huge protests in Karakalpakstan. That makes no sense. And again, it just points to the fact that the authorities have not been willing or able to have a real conversation, a sober conversation about how these events took place. Okay, thank you. Um, and we're, uh, we'll get back to the Karakalpaks in Kazakhstan real quickly, briefly in just a second. Uh, but I do have to remind uh, that we're talking about Karakalpakstan a year after the violence. And my guests are Joanna Lillis, veteran reporter on Central Asia for Eurasianet, The Economist, and author of the book Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. Steve Sverdlov, a rights lawyer who spent many years focusing on Central Asia, and is currently an associate professor at the University of Southern California, and Gulaim Akhmedova a native of Karakal, Pakistan, who now lives outside Uzbekistan, and we are using the pseudonym Gulaim to protect 
friends and family back in Karakal, Pakistan, from any possible repercussions from the authorities. Um, and since Steve just brought up the Karakal, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, I think it's worth adding a, few, a little bit about them. Joanna, can you tell me something about them? Um, yes, indeed. There are there, there are a number of people, if, if I'm not mistaken, five um, who are currently under arrest. Now they're all Uzbek citizens. They were arrested in the in the weeks after the violence um, by, but they were arrested by um, Kazakh law enforcement officers, but they, who were accompanied by Uzbek um, members of the Uzbek security forces. Now um, there is uh, one particular case. Um, they, 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 they've they've been living in Kazakhstan for for many years, um, and the one particular case that um, you know I think shocked the the, the many Karakalpaks who live in in Karakalpaks in uh, Kazakhstan, sorry, is, was the arrest of a, a, a doctor. She's been living in Kazakhstan for years, and uh, the the um, Uzbek security forces turned up with the Kazakh law enforcement to arrest her, and she remains in detention centre. You know I think they were they were placed under arrest, and her name is Raisa Hudaybegenova. They were placed under arrest for a year, I think, while pending well presumably deportation proceedings, but we don't really know we don't have much further information about about their fates and there's also worth mentioning is um the case of uh nearby Wurzbayev, um who was also tried in absentia now he's a kazakh citizen um who's a karakal pakistan um member of the dia- dia- diaspora living in western kazakhstan and unlike the you know the the, the aman sagadulayev who was um, sentenced in absentia also um for allegedly stoking um violence um now now he he's an active kind of um advocate for uh, independent Kazakhstan. Uh, I'm sorry, independent Karagal Pakistan. Um, but um, this Niyatbay Orasbayev is simply a sort of cultural figure, has run a cultural community and so on. So, you know, there's clearly, um, there's a lot of finger pointing at, at, um, at Karagal Pakistan in Kazakhstan. Whereas, um, you know, I've spoken to members of the diaspora and what they were doing was, you know, making videos expressing their their desire for them not to change the constitution, change Karakalpak status. Um, so, and as Steve pointed out, it's not a crime to discuss an independent Karakalpak stand. It's a constitutional right, in fact. Um, and on that note, just going off the topic of Kazakhstan, um, it's worth pointing out um, that the government, specifically the Uzbek government, published its draft of the new constitution and specifically asked people to discuss it. Um, now, obviously, they didn't want violent protests, but they specifically asked people to discuss it. And um, that later, discussions that were held in Karakalpakistan were held up in court as crimes. And I'm thinking in particular of a meeting that some serious lawyers called in a room quite openly. They hired a room in a hotel to have a conversation about the constitutional changes. Now, later that was used against them in court. And how can it be a crime to discuss constitutional changes or to discuss an independent Karakalpak stand for that matter when it's a constitutional right? And how can it be a crime to hold discussions when the government has specifically asked you to hold those discussions? No, great point. Great point. Um, Thank you. Let's go to today and what it's like. And Joanna, I know you're going to leave in a moment, so I'm going to take advantage of you being here and ask you this question, and then I'll get to Steve and and Gulayim also. What does it feel like today? I mean, what's your impression of the situation in Karakalpakistan today? The Uzbek government makes a big deal about sending officials. Mirzioyev goes out there. They give them, we're going to give you tax deals. We're going to give you this and that and that. Uh, Is it having any effect, or are the Karakalpak people... um, just so skeptical about the Uzbek government, it's not making any difference. 
Well, um, I was last in Karakal, Pakistan, um, only in April um, when I went and uh, met um, Dalit Murat Tajmarat's brother, who's his public defender, and also met some other family members. And I also spoke to people um, about their feelings about the, the, the what was coming up, the referendum to change the constitution, but also more generally about their feelings. And I found that they they remain both angry and traumatized. They 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 feel that. You know, the, the people I spoke to, let's say, I'm talking about ordinary members of the public in the bazaar, people selling things and so on. Um, you know, they feel that justice has, has, wasn't being done in the trials. They felt angry that being victimized, that being, they felt angry that that kind of the rest of Uzbekistan was kind of, they were being held up as sort of violent separatists to the rest of Uzbekistan. They felt it was unfair. They also felt, um, I think that, yeah, they, they that, that they were being treated in, in to some degree as, as second-class citizens um, without the right. They weren't allowed to exercise their constitutional rights. Um, now, it's, it's also true to say that um, the government and uh, President Mizioyev have been trying to um, adopt some programs that would help develop Karakal, Pakistan, a region with so many economic and environmental problems. I mean, most famously, the site of the dried-up Aral Sea, um, a very difficult place for people to live. So obviously, there were a lot of frustrations about their living standards and joblessness and the environmental problems that they suffer from, um, they must have fed into the protests as well. Um, now, the government has, as I said, tried to be, adopt programs to uh, mitigate some of this. And there are programs and the government talked after the protests about how much investment it's put into the region. But I think people are not seeing too many tangible results. And so those frustrations um, remain. Now, um, it's clear that President Mizioyev, you know, feels he, he clearly understands that, Kar- that, that, that Karakal, Pakistan, remains a, a very thorny region, republic for him to deal with. I mean, he started his um, campaign trail um, uh, for this election coming up in July. He started that um, in in Karakal, Pakistan. He's described himself as a son of the Karakal, Pakistan uh, people, as well as the Uzbek people. But I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, divisive discussion on social media. And I think the, I think another point worth, worth, make, worth making is that the Uzbek Uzbek, um, that, that the Uzbek people, I mean, in the rest of Uzbekistan, have also, um, to some degree, been fed a line that these are dangerous separatists. And so they don't have a very clear picture of what really happened and why it happened or, or of the problems faced by their sort of Karakal Pakistan fe- um, fellow citizens. Um, and I think um, that that's also a problem. Um, and um, so I think those frustrations that exist in Karakal Pakistan, uh, there are socioeconomic grievances and frustrations, and now there are major political grievances and frustrations and frustrations about um, the treatment of um, some of of the people uh, in the trials. Um, So I think that the situation is going to remain very, very problematic for for a long time to come. And I think also the fact that the truth has not come out about what happened, the names of the dead, as you mentioned, have not been officially published. Um, The Independent Commission has not published its results. So I think kind of finding some closure for people is is impossible in this situation. So um, the government's giving itself a difficult job by not, you know, there needs to be a proper discussion about what happened, why it happened, and how this be prevented in the future and also if it were possible to have an open discussion about the status of Karakal Pakistan where people could discuss independence I'm sure that would also help but as it is I see these um, frustrations tensions anger remaining um, a problem for a long time to come although people will obviously be extremely frightened to uh, express them openly and and even more frightened of course to, to go out and protest so I think that's the situation in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. 
Um, Gulaim, I'm going to ask you about that too. What What do you hear from out there, from out your friends in Karakal, Pakistan, or, or other members of the Karakal Pak diaspora abroad? Um, and I have seen, you know, I follow some of the Karakal Pak ad- activists, for instance, and uh, and they've, they've been saying, "Let's we want a peaceful protest in Nakus on this day." Um, but but you never see that there was actually a protest. I mean, so I guess it's still impossible for anyone to come out and meet in public to to talk about what what happened last year or ask for some kind of justice. Yes, so uh, the situation in Karakal, Pakistan got worse after uh, July events. They uh, face heavy uh, repression. Uh, People are imprisoned without cause, beaten for clicking like on Karakal, patriotic videos on YouTube. And uh, just uh, last week, students who said that Dalit Murad's trial was not fair, they were expelled from university. And uh, some members of uh, Telegram can- uh, channel, which is called uh, Future of Kargal Pakistan, they got warnings from the Uzbek government saying that uh, they will be ho- uh, held accountable just for being member of that group in Telegram. They didn't voice any issues. So people getting lots of threats. Uh, Uzbek government also reached out to Twitter and tried to silence Karakalpak activists. And um, thankfully, you know, Twitter didn't follow their request. So right now, people are just uh, so tired of the injustice. And some young people reached out to me personally, and they said that they are ready to sacrifice their lives for Karakal Pakistan. And they asked me what they can do. And I begged them not to do anything that will harm their precious Karakalpak lives or the lives of Uzbek people. I encourage them to search for peaceful resolution. Okay. Uh, thank you, Julian. Uh You know, I guess we'll, we'll get, since Joanne is still with us, let's get the last comments and we can get everybody in. And I'll start with Steve. Is there any possibility of justice being done? Is there any way that, that, that this situation uh, can be resolved as you see it, as the situation stands right now. Well, a, a number of things need to be done for that to happen. I believe first and foremost, the government still has an international obligation. It's bound under several treaties that it signed voluntarily to uphold its obligations to provide truth and accountability. That means it still must conduct an independent investigation that could include international observers. That's something again we we haven't mentioned that the OSCE. And the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights have also called for those things. And we should remember that Uzbekistan is sitting now on the UN Human Rights Council. So it still has an obligation to release the names of the dead. At a minimum, it must conduct an investigation. It should hold accountable the law enforcement officers that pulled the trigger, that killed people that day. That, I think, all needs to happen. Then we need to look again at these trials examine each case, case by case, but certainly look at Taj Muratov. I think that appeal is certain to go to international institutions and, and will be looked at and scrutinized, certainly for, for the presence of torture in, in that case. I, I think Guillaume was absolutely right, though, that now we're a year out, we're looking at a case where the security services seem to be very enabled, very empowered to hunt down People in the diaspora, I constantly get reports from people in different countries who have had their accounts hacked on Telegram. The other day we saw that Daulet Murat's sister had her account on Telegram also hacked, um, presumably by 
people simply just trying to muzzle the messenger, silence activists from raising these issues. So we have heightened surveillance, and I think that's very concerning. That needs to, again, that also flies in the face of President Mirzoyev's oft-repeated statements that he wants in Uzbekistan, that, that prizes freedom of speech. We saw a really good report coming out from the Uzbek German Forum for Human Rights on problems that bloggers and journalists are having in Uzbekistan or earlier this week. And and someone we haven't mentioned, Lalagul Kalikhanova, was one of those people that received house arrest and and it appeared was was pressured to make statements that, that really favored the government when she was uh, let off, uh, I guess, quote unquote, let off easy, uh, not given a prison sentence, but sentenced to house arrest. She, for example, was a was a very important journalist and blogger uh, among Karl Kalpax, and now is not doing that. So we've we've lost voices in this community. One other thing that occurs to me, Bruce, that's important to mention is that Uzbekistan was slated to conduct a census in 2023, the first time since 1989. And how will it conduct a census? How can it conduct a census when it's impossible for Karl Pax and other ethnic minorities to really discuss? The reality of their issues to talk about education when there aren't when it's clear that international uh, UN committees have pointed out that Uzbekistan doesn't collect demographic information. So again, we have a lot of outstanding issues, but at the very uh, center of this is again, I think the need for for truth, the need for a sober, difficult conversation. Because I, I agree with Joanna that one thing that's really troubling is that many, many Uzbeks, and even in the Uzbek media uh, abroad, um, there's still really this absence of understanding of who Karakalpaks are, what rights they have under the Uzbek constitution, and why it's not a crime to peacefully protest. I think that is so essential to Uzbekistan living up to its human rights obligations. The right to protest, the right to peacefully criticize is at the heart of any democracy uh, and, and any constitution. And there's been so much discussion these past several months in Uzbekistan about a new constitution, now upcoming elections. That right has to be guaranteed. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Joanna, last thoughts, comments? Yes. Um, Steve talks about the right to um, criticize, you know, and um, so we, and you, you mentioned the, the, the excellent new report about uh, pressure on journalists and bloggers. Now, um, uh, during my visit to Uzbekistan now, I'm speaking to you from Tashkent um, today, um, and during my visit in April to report on the referendum, I met, I met several journalists and bloggers um, who all spoke of a markedly deteriorated and deteriorated deteriorating situation when it comes to freedom of expression for the media and for and for um, bloggers as well. We've seen a number of um, bloggers jailed specifically on, on, on what human rights activists say are spurious charges that are simply expressing their opinions. Um, but journalists as well, are, are you know, obviously they, they talk a lot about self-censorship and, and say it's a means of survival that you have to self-censor. And they are, they are talking and in, in many cases they are afraid to be identified in most cases, they are afraid to be identified. They talk of um, intense pressure um, in the run-up to the referendum. Some of them believe that the pressure started after the uh, violence in Karakalpakstan, but many were many were certainly talking about pressure in the run-up to the referendum on constitutional changes that has allowed um, that that the government says is to secure better the rights of the Uzbek people, but has also allowed Mezioyev to extend his rule. Um, and, and the journalists that I've been meeting in the past week or so. 
I've also been talking about this kind of um, feeling that the, the gains that were made after Mizuev came to power and kind of loosened the screws on the media in, in a very marked way, a very positive way. They're talking about these gains being rolled back. Um, you know, they're, 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 so I think that there's been repercussions um, from from the violence in Karakabakhstan and the government's reaction to it specifically, the inability to confront it um, openly um, and and the absence of also justice for the dead, um, you know, the, 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 the absence of trials for the for, for any law enforcement people, um, that there still have no trials, um, no, no one has gone to trial. So I think the journalists um, are, are very concerned about um, this deteriorating freedom of speech. And it does seem, uh, for me as a journalist, um, and it's something that I think all of us are very excited about after um, President Mezioev came to power and loosened the screws um, somewhat. Um, you know, I think um, it's it's really sad to see that being rolled back a bit. And uh, of course, we're going into a presidential election now. No political opposition has been able to form. Um, the, the one person hidden as Alakulov who's tried to form an opposition party. And of course, you need a party to nominate, to be nominate you to be a presidential candidate his attempts have been unsuccessful thwarted at every turn denied registration and um, so I think that's also worth mentioning you know we're seeing um, Uzbekistan a, a, could be at a turning point here as Mezioev extends his rule and uh, you know I think people some people would have hoped to see opposition in, in elections not just the same rubber stamp elections as the Karimov era and um, I think I, I think having a freer a freer press of course the press wasn't entirely free even even um, you know after Mezioev uh, loosened the screws but having a freer press is something that is a gain for all Uzbeks and, and it, it, it also helps the government to understand people's problems so um, I think we, we all need to hope for, for some improvements on, on, on all of that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Gulam, we'll give the last word to you. What, what should people know uh, outside the region uh, in the international community and, and Uzbeks inside Uzbekistan? What should they know about the Karakalpak people and how they feel now? Many people do not uh, realize um, that in 1993, after the breakup of the USSR, Karakal Pakistan signed a 20-year reunification agreement with Uzbekistan, which guaranteed the uh, Karakal Pakistan constitutional right to withdraw via referendum from Uzbekistan. According to this agreement, after 20 years, the parties would either extend the agreement or Karakal Pakistan would hold a referendum on leaving and becoming an independent free a state separate from Uzbekistan. But there was no vote in 2013. Uzbek President Karimov locked up uh, in jail anyone who dared to speak up about it. Uh, Raslik prison was used to put Karakalpak prisoners into boiling water for speaking about independence. Karakalpakistan needs assistance from the West to secure its freedom and Karakalpakistan will offer several natural resources to the Western nations. The EU and the US should be involved in assisting Karakalpakistan to gain the right to self-determination. And the presence in Central Asia is a powerful, uh, amidst the powerful anti-Western block of dictatorship of Russia, China, Iran, and C Central Asia. We need help from the West and from the people who, from human rights organizations. 
And uh, also, I would like to end with uh, with a quote from Martin uh, Luther King that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Please do not treat it as a place you have never heard of, but we desperately need your help. Right now, we are uh, facing ethnic cleansing. Women children are being ripped off their bodies, their uterus being uh, removed without their consent. Uh, harsh economic conditions are created in Karakalpakstan, despite of the rich natu natural resources we have. And um, also, uh, Uzbek government appoints uh, people who were born outside of Uzbekistan, of Karakalpakstan, to the key uh, leadership position who are ethnically not Karakalpak Uzbek people, and that's a spit on Karakalpak people's faces that even their own people cannot be in uh, lead government positions. So uh, we just need help. Okay. Thank you. And on that note, we will conclude this session of the Medjlis podcast. I'm sure we'll get back to the topic of Karakal Pakistan in the future. So I'd like to thank Steve and Gulaim and Joanna for being on the program. And a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcaster for Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week.